Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations that matter with people and ideas who are making a difference. Today, our guest is Vanessa Anuli and Sadie, authors of the C.T. Mira uh, op-ed, Pregnancy and Childbirth Should Not Be Deadly for Black Women in C.T. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so I, I think it's obvious. Yes, it should not be deadly. But why did y'all, first of all, why did y'all feel it was so important to pen this piece uh, to the larger community to say it publicly? Uh, I'll start. So um, I think one of the main things about why we thought it was so important is because we are lacking real services to particularly black moms here uh, in the New Haven area and in Connecticut more generally. And also that Anuli and I, um, we are at Southern Connecticut State University, both as faculty members. Mm. And Southern is a real incredible location, a physical location that is central. Uh, we have unbelievable scholars, academics, services, facilities. Um, and, you know, in conversation with both Anuli and with Sadie, we were talking about how Southern could really be a, 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 an incredible location to improve the services to uh, moms here in our community to make it so that it isn't deadly to become a mother. But that's just my perspective. Indeed, and uh, so well said. And just to add to that, it um, I think both of us being at Southern Connecticut State in different departments in sociology and public health, it was a good opportunity to collaborate. And also there was a story that made headlines about a track star, to, to, um, Tori Bowie, um, mm. that had um, was a, an example of kind of a, a, an avoidable death while pregnant and so it just um, let us kind of come together and explore all of the different factors that lead to these um, preventable deaths uh, including in public health we talk about social determinants of health and mm. what those mean is these are non-medical factors that affect your health that people don't immediately think about so your level of education your access to income your type of housing your transportation um, that um, actually can affect your level of care and ultimately your health outcomes mm. and for me um, I'm not with the, the university uh, but I did meet these two lovely ladies and decided that I really wanted to be a part of this work 
Uh, I came from the uh, background of working with maternal and child health for the city. And because they no longer have those services, I want to see something put back in place for women, and specifically African-American women, because we are dying at higher rates than we, um, than, and there shouldn't be a rate higher of any kind of death. But that's why I'm involved with this, and I'm also involved with the Connecticut Breastfeeding Coalition to also advocate for black women to be educated about breastfeeding. Okay. Yeah, no, that, th- those are all important things. Um, I, I, I guess one of the things that to, to piggyback off of what y'all just said, you know, why do you feel social determinants are so important in health and health access? Okay, I'll, I'll tackle that one and just say that, and I think I see this a lot of times even with, uh, you know, students that I teach. In terms of the responsibility for good health, sometimes people often uh, blame the individual without looking at uh, the conditions around the individual. So the society, the um, organizations where they go to, the like healthcare organizations. And um, when you do that, you are kind of, uh, penalizing, you're at, um, giving moral judgment to these kind of situations and, and that fuels these um, problematic outcomes. So I think when you frame it as social determinants, so these are things that you don't immediately think about, but that have um, a really um, lasting and a very a significant effect on health outcomes. And then the other thing I'll say about this topic, it's interesting because so since um, doing this op-ed, it's actually brought um, more attention. People have reached out. Um, I've done webinars. I've noticed that sometimes when you bring up the issue of black maternal mortality, people are surprised. You know, how it's shocking. How could this be happening in our country? Um, but it also encourages people to think about, well, what role can I play? And so when we when I do these presentations to clinicians and healthcare providers, um, I let them see, like, what role do you think you can play? Such as what is the role of implicit bias? Mm-hmm. Right. It could be dismissing. A woman's concerns about the care that she needs and it, it isn't just a stereotype it could be a deadly mistake right so I think it's about um, encouraging people to reflect that this is a problem that you can actually help and that you um, can contribute to as well mm. I think that comes up a lot as well with sociology it's one of the reasons that I'm really excited about this sort of cross-pollination between public health and my department of sociology and criminology. I'm a criminologist by training. And, you know, what I remind my students, just as Anuli does, um, and in my scholarship, I focus on taking that sort of taking off your glasses that just focus on an individual and what did they do wrong? Why are they dead? What did they do that they're dead or something? And zooming out to these larger structural factors, right? It could be, you know, access to food. Um, You know, when we talk in criminology, we talk about um, the intersections that make it so that people engage in sex work and, and, and how that, right. And also, you know, if we're thinking about Tori Bowie, she's a celebrity, but so often the moms that are dying, um, or are, are really have conditions that impact the rest of their lives, they're often engaged, and not often, but sometimes they're engaged in sex work or sometimes they have drug use, you know, and we want to blame them, except if we zoom out, we really can do something about it. Our hospitals can do something about it. Our schools can do something about it. Our universities can do something about it if we zoom back out. And also, obviously, then looking at policing, looking at our, our um, incarceration systems, all of that. If we zoom out, we, we can really make some big changes. 
And to add to that, there's also the maternal mental health factor mm. um, because uh, women are often, they don't get the proper mental health services that they need, and especially if you're a person of color. And I have a statistic here that says maternal mental health conditions are the most common complication of pregnancy and birth, affecting wow. 800,000 families each year in the United States. So that plays a big component as well. No, that, that is... Um that's a lot of this seemed shocking, and at the same time, when I read this piece, it was something like, "Oh, I knew this to be true, and I know this to be true um, because of lived experience, right? Because of the communities I belong to, the intersections that uh, I'm part of, I knew that, wow, it's not shocking to me. Race-based medicine. There are people of color who face deficits. And even though you look at other communities that are adjacent zip codes or sometimes they share the same hospitals, despite that, you see dramatic effects in health quality. Um, Sadie, you were talking about how you uh, did work with the city to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. Why did these programs stop? What do you think should be done? How do our, our neighboring communities, right, whether it be the universities or nonprofits, how do we pick up the pieces and bring back this important work? I, I think it starts with having someone from the top down be very interested in families um, mm -hmm. and in their care, maternal care, to have interest in their uh, social determinant factors, have interest in mental health and to really equip the field and have workers ready to go out and do that work. When I had that responsibility, the home visitors, because it was a home visiting um, program, the visitors were trained to help families prenatally mm. up until the age of the, the child was five. So we were talking about these things and making sure that families knew what to ask for, to advocate for them when they went to go see their OBGYN or if they went to the clinic um, to know what to ask for, to not be afraid, to say, okay, I don't feel good. I need somebody to hear me. So we also started working with doulas um, and making sure that families felt really connected to doulas and midwives because sometimes doctors can't spend that kind of time with that patient, but we educated the families, no, you're the patient, you're the consumer. You fight for that right. If you're not feeling good, you have somebody advocate for you and you learn how to advocate that, no, I want to be seen and I need to be seen because I'm not feeling well. And believing black women, right, which yes. is so incredible and just doesn't happen so often. Black women are so often minimized or so often not listened to. Their pain is minimized. They're thought of as liars. They're thought of as in all of these terrible things. And actually, they're in pain and they're dying. Yes. And there's such a core of so many of our communities that we must be addressing these things. And I think, you know, um, uh, you know, I'd like, again, to say Southern Connecticut State University, one of the things that I'm excited about, we have a new president. Um, who is interested in these things, right? So we have the opportunity to be, to be top down about this um, at Southern. And we have so many incredible students at Southern um, who could be doing this work, who, you know, we have um, brand new um, uh, public health building, um, science buildings, the, the professors, we have so many professors with PhDs compared to other universities that, that don't. 
um, we could be training this next level of, of this next generation of doulas, of nurses, of of doctors, of of social workers, of sociologists, <laughs> right? All of the we have that richness. It's just about how prioritizing these Black women, uh, in particular Black and Brown women, uh, so that we can make these intergenerational changes. So I I know that Venice I know that you're a mama. Uh, uh How does it make you feel as 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 a mom, right, to know that you know you have this uh kinship with others around having children and then knowing that there are groups of people who just aren't getting the access to the care I mean, I think I'd add my whiteness to that, right? And that with my privilege, I, you know, I remember my own pregnancy. I remember my own birthing experience, my own parenting journey, which has been quite a journey. They all are quite journeys. Um, and I, I, I remember the places where I was listened to or wasn't listened to. And it's always in my brain sort of where are there times where, you know, my palms were itchy when I was pregnant. And the second that my doctor heard that, she was like, get in here immediately, right now, get in here. You are giving birth later tonight. And I was like, oh my God. So I went and got some falafel and I packed <laughs> up my bags and I was like, oh, I'm going to have a baby. There was a rainbow, you know, and, and, but I knew, you know, it has given my training as a sociologist and sort of who I am. I knew other people, oh, your palms are itchy. Like, shut up. Like you have allergies. It's hot outside. And that can lead to. Um, the death of your child. It's its a condition that can lead to the death of your child. If you have itchy palms and you're pregnant, by the way, go to your doctor. Um, <laughs> but but there isn't the education in communities. You know, women are thought of as complainers, as naggers, right? And all of these things that, that make it so that we don't speak up. So being a mom, you know, I, I know how incredibly hard it has been for me. Um, and to know that it is levels and levels harder for other people, it just feels like it's it has to be the responsibility of all of us, including myself and our communities, to make that, that journey easier. We have to do it in community with our fellow moms. What, no, that's definitely true. I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I often think about how my mom worked as a nurse's aide and was like, yep, I worked up until, you know, I had you in birth. And then I went back to work like three or four days mm. later. Mm. And I think about how, you know, these systems of care, how oftentimes, right, hospitals, these institutions, it's black and brown people holding down the structural base. Yes. And yet somehow they still don't have access to the very needs, even though they're part of these systems and institutions. Um, I, I think the the key point that you said, right, is being heard, right? There's very small... Believed. Not just heard, yeah. but also believed. Mm -hmm. um, I, it, it makes me think about this role of doulas, right? Mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. you know, midwifery and doulas, it's something that has come full circle where we kind of were like, oh, we don't need that anymore. And now everybody and their mother... Right. Literally. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> figuratively, right? I, I, I hear talking about finding a doula. Um, but I, I guess a question that I have for y'all, do you feel, you know, this part of being listened to in the deeper care work 
is solely the responsibility of a doula or is this something that doctors nurses need to be better equipped better trained at listening and engaging and active listening uh, to patients I think all involved with the medical care should be listening not just doulas they all need to listen that comes from the nurse the nurse's aide all the way up to the top um, because people deserve to go into the hospital get appropriate care know that they're being released that somebody heard them and i'm taking home this small fragile child and then i have to worry about maybe having high blood pressure and a high uh, hypertension episode when i get home mm. no um my thing was when I had my son, I had my daughter and I was out in two days. When I had my son um, who just wasn't eating, I, I put my foot down and I'm like, no, I'm not leaving until, you know, this child is eating properly because something here is amiss. And I'm not taking this baby home when I have a three-year-old at home and trying to make sure that I'm there for everyone when I know something is not quite right. Mm-hmm. And it just, it boiled down to him being very sensitive to different uh nipples on the bottle so we went we chose to breastfeed which was better for him but still my i'm like and my mother helped me to do that my mother was a Mm. midwife in the south she was also a wet nurse in the south Mm. and she told me she said no you put your foot down and that was 33 years ago and i put my foot down and i said no we're staying until we figure this out but putting your foot down is so incredibly hard it's not how women are raised to, to be comfortable putting our feet down. Mm-hmm. We are raised to not put our feet down. Mm-hmm. And so how, you know, thank goodness you had a mom that mm-hmm. stuck with you, but you know, we need to be able to support our fellow sisters when they don't know how to put their foot down. They don't know how to use those words. And when have they ever been listened to by people in authority? We, you know, we've got a school to prison pipeline. We've got yep. girls being kicked out of classes for their hairstyles. <laughs> like why in the world would anyone listen to you when you say you're in pain or your child isn't eating? You're just gonna get blamed. Like it has to be an entire paradigm shift in how we think about that. And, you know, Sadie's work with the Breastfeeding Coalition is a perfect example of that. It's just one very small but also massive piece of all of this. It's learning how to breastfeed. It's, it isn't it's easy. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. It can be traumatic and, and it's terrifying and nobody tells you that. And then all of a sudden you're stuck trying to feed a child doing what it's natural for you to do. And it isn't natural at all without that help. And I like that you said um, you referred to something about language. There's got to be a common language that we use. You can't use language that people do not understand. Mm. Common language is necessary in our vocabulary today. People do not need to be talked down to. They don't need to be talked to. They need to be talked with. Mm. Mm. I want to echo what was said about it being everyone's responsibility and also the need not to blame and looking at external factors. So if you're living in neighborhoods where you don't have access to fresh produce and um, even policy factors that are either slashing, let's say, um, benefits for people to be able to feed their families and how um, that can affect your nutrition during uh, your pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so maybe instead of being blamed for having a poor diet, you know, looking at some of those factors such as um, the policies that are in place. And we can't also ignore the um, effect of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So um, things have already, COVID-19 really aggravated so many um, disparities um, as it relates to the, the mental factors, the physical, emotional, social tolls. And they're going to be even wor- um, worsened for black and brown um, communities and black and brown women. And so even to echo that point about believe black women, 
um, it, it is so important to note that everyone takes a role. So if someone is coming to you complaining of that um, pain or chest pain, it's not that they are um, making things up or, you know, having stressed you know, out, stressed out or being <laughs> misdiagnosed. It's important to understand that just dismissing those concerns aren't just problematic. They can be deadly and um, they can affect families by not just losing, let's say, a mother and the child, how does it affect the um, existing members of the family, which can really contribute to uh, generational trauma in families? So there's just um, uh, so many uh, multifaceted factors to consider. Yeah. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, with our illustrious guests, uh, Vanessa Anuli and Sadie, uh, authors of uh, a piece pregnancy and childbirth should not be deadly for black women in ct uh what what brought you to this work what like how did how did you end up here today in this work a short answer to that so <laughs> um and i tell students this is an example of um your re- research begets research so that when you do research it creates opportunities for you. So I've always been really passionate about health equity and health equity as it relates to so many different factors. Earlier this year, um, some colleagues, um, faculty and students in the Department of Public Health at Southern Connecticut State University, we published a paper called Listen to the Whispers Before They Become Screams, mm-hmm. Screams Addressing Black Maternal Mortality in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that paper came out of a undergraduate student at Southern um, approaching me saying she was very interested in the topic of black maternal mortality and just did a search of, of the directory to find someone that was doing health equity work and my name popped up and mind you the student was not even a public health student they were an english major but it was just something that they were interested in so um we get together um a team of um uh, two professors two students all black women we now do this paper together and it was very informative for the students who um, were not yet mothers. That one of the students even commented, "Wow, this gives me a lot of insight into what to expect when, you know, if and when I decide to start my own family." So um, we published the paper. It took a year long. It was a year long process that included an initial rejection. So the fact oh, wow. that you know some people didn't think the topic was worthy enough, but we persisted. So the paper came out in February of 2023, and so. Um, so Venice was nice enough to, uh, she sent an email just saying that she stumbled upon the paper on the Southern website. And um, prior to that, we had not known. So I said, I didn't know that there was another faculty in sociology that had <laughs> very similar interests. So it was just amazing how um, putting that work out there created opportunities. And um, she proposed um, writing, um, doing an op-ed about the story about T- Tori Bowie. And um, she mentioned um, connecting um, with uh, Sadie as well. And Sadie, I had actually met previously. Um, so I do work for the um, Hamden Partnership for Young Children as a parent ambassador. And I did a presentation at their breakfast meeting on social determinants of health mm-hmm. and early childhood education. So we had actually met um, previously at that. And I said, oh, familiar name. So we got together and we talked about how we wanted to put this op-ed together. And in that um, process. Um, like I said, it was a chance to, so I mentioned to Sadie um, that we had a, a screening at Southern of a birthing justice documentary and um, as well as for um, uh, follow-up documentaries and screenings and just more ways to collaborate and to see where we could take this. 
And once the op-ed came out, just another example of how, like I said, it just creates so many opportunities. So um, someone at the uh, racial justice, uh, uh, the Commission for Racial Justice in Public Health reached out to me and said, I saw your um, op-ed published. Um, can we set a time to talk? So we set up a meeting. We set a time to talk. And she said, I do work with the Connecticut State Assembly. Would you be interested in possibly exploring some um, some some up, up opportunities to collaborate. And then I tell her I teach a public health class. And I said, would you be willing to do a guest talk for my students? And she agreed. So I think what's exciting is that we are getting the attention out there, but we're also um, uh, collaborating more, getting more resources and involving students, which I think is really uh, an important part of this as well. And I met Venice. Actually, we were uh, we had a meeting for something else and we just started talking <laughs> over coffee and we we developed this um, this conversation that we had no idea that we ha we had some connectivity to, mm -hmm. and I just said, "What are the odds?" And we just literally hit the ground running from there. <laughs> we and have it, all these plans, Justin. I know. I got to tell you, we have, we've got fifty years worth of plans. And to for be this connected state. to a newly, I'm like, "Oh, we were just meant to do this. This is something that has to happen." Indeed. The. I I guess. You know, if you could talk more, Anuli, about uh, this, you know, you're literally doing a piece, right? Doing research about listening to black women and then rejected <laughs> in that research. Can you, can you talk about how that felt and how you feel now? Or That's is it the question. same? That's a great question. And I think because we had students involved in the project, I was so determined just yes. to show them that like, no, this can, you know, this idea will be accepted by someone, like someone will be able to listen to this. And so uh, it took a lot of persistence, uh, determination. So when getting that initial react, uh, rejection, I think, you know, the, the tips I told to students was just, you know, keep going, like, you know, there will be a home for this idea. We don't know where yet, just keep going. And the students did comment later that it was important for them to see that, right? To see that, okay, if we keep persisting, yes. um, we can find something. So we just uh, shopped around for another journal. And like I said, there's a lot involved in research. It's very painstaking. You have to, our paper had over 100 uh, citations, references. So you're really um, digging into the literature. It's also very, um, it, it can encourage you to reflect because, you know, I think, Throughout the research, you're constantly encountering information that literally childbirth is one of the deadliest things that a black woman can go through in this country. Um, it can be um, jarring to continue to. And I think when you're mired in the research and you're seeing these statistics and these data, it could be um, it could be discouraging. Mm -hmm. It could be very deflating. Um, but so I think seeing the culmination, the product um, with your name on it, I mean, it does something and. You know, the students were even saying, let's write more. Like, what's our next topic? Which is the beauty, right? To see. Um, so there were many lessons, I think, including seeing things through. That's a very important lesson. Just see things through. When you have a product in hand, there's nothing like that. The other thing about having a product in hand, it, it shows that you have like an expert or you're, you know, you have like you're an expert in that topic and then you get invited so the students, one of the students said, I, I got an email. They actually addressed me as doctor. I'm not a doctor yet, but, you hey, know. Love the yet. Yeah, yeah but exactly. But maybe now I can be a doctor, right? So that was, um, that was pretty great to see. That's, that's beautiful. I, uh, I, uh, 
one of the things that I'm hearing from y'all is that there's great hope um, coming out of this piece. So even though we're highlighting something, uh, uh, highlighting right the trauma that is going on and the act of harm that's going on, there's great hope. What what gives you hope? What what do you feel are the next steps that need to happen? Right. So if you're talking to policymakers. You're talking to mothers. What are the things that you'd share with them to give them hope and point them in the right direction? I think, I just add, I think what gives me hope is seeing the word get out there. So more and more people are getting exposed. Um, when you disseminate information, you never know who's out there listening. Uh, some of them might contact you and ask. Some of them... Um, may not, but I think just getting the word out there, spreading the word, um, the knowledge, um, and I think the collaboration between different sectors, so academic institutions, community partners, and um, the more that people hear about this, the more they can talk in conversation. It can also make people feel less isolated to say, oh, I'm not alone. Like maybe someone else is going through this. And I think there could be um, some really great uh, beauty and sharing and some power in just that um, sharing and collaboration. I think especially about things that have been taboo to talk about for so long, right? That because moms are supposed to just love being a mom and love being pregnant and like, you know, you're glowing and all these things. And I think it's so important to just be honest with people and say, you know what, pregnancy, I suppose there are people out there who glow during pregnancy. I certainly wasn't one of them. <laughs> um, and most people I know weren't, right? Pregnancy can be incredibly difficult. It can be incredibly isolating. You know, you add domestic violence to that mix. You add uh, having other children to that mix, right? It can be so hard and being able to have honest conversations with people I find social media um, has also changed it because people are willing to talk about all of the different pains that they have talking about endometriosis talking about all sorts of you know all the different problems that happen during um, pregnancy during childbirth and then afterwards uh, so that gives me hope as well. And also the students, right? I mean, I, you know, at Southern, I keep meeting every single student. It's freaking amazing. <laughs> Not just because they're brilliant, but also because they have so much going on. I came from another university. I'm very lucky because I've been able to start again here at Southern in my hometown. You know, I grew up in Hamden, and but I worked for many, many years out in New Jersey. And the, the being able to see these Southern students who, even though, new, you know, I worked at a state university before, um, the students are dealing with so much. I mean, they have deaths in their family. They have caretaking responsibilities. They've got multiple jobs. They have dealt through COVID. They've done all of these things, and yet they still come to class. They still bring themselves to class uh, with, with children themselves, right? Dealing with pregnancy, all of these different things, and they still come to class, and they're still excited about these things, and they're ready to go. And I feel like New Haven in particular, right, has so many resources. I mean, yes. you talked about different zip codes, right? So, so we have to force, you know, some zip codes to listen, like this, this is what you're surrounded by. It's time to get this done, right? What Sadie was talking about, the incredible work that Sadie was doing, you know, time to get that back up and running, guys. Like it really just is. And and hey, Yale, if you're not going to do it, Southern is coming and ready to do these things because we are serving those communities and we're giving those communities the opportunity to get an incredible education. We just have to support them in the ways that will keep them in school. And I personally would like to see uh, the medical profession take some ownership and responsibility mm -hmm. regarding some of this birthing trauma that is affecting black women and women of color. 
Uh, there needs to be accountability. What does that look like? Well, we're just now starting, so I can't tell you right offhand what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that accountability should come from the medical profession. No, that 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 is a, a, a definite. I think one of the things that surprised me was that Connecticut, in so many ways, is a leader, um, and yet this national issue right uh persists and so to your point sadie yeah the, you know there needs to be a deeper accountability um do y'all have thoughts venice Vanilli, about what a deeper accountability may or could look like i you know as a criminologist i think about accountability a lot i think um we have to first acknowledge structural problems, right? We have to get to a place where people are understanding that it's structural problems. Um, and instead of looking down, which can be so easy, you have to look up and you have to sort of look at the ways in which larger structures are, are creating these patterns. Um, and once you see the patterns, you can't unsee them. Um, and so, I, you know, what do we, but what do we do with people in power? <laughs> We've tried a whole lot of things. I, you know, really it's numbers and it's, it's using our voices and speaking as loudly as we possibly can to as many people as we possibly can. And money affects them too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Indeed. And I want to echo that about structural problems, um, including many being the holdovers from uh, the days of slavery. Yes. And so yep. um, in terms of the, um, whether it is the, not just economic, where people are um, housed, um, generational wealth due to policies that um, prohibited um, people from living in certain areas or even having access to home ownership. So um, just those structural barriers are ingrained and deep rooted and there needs to be um, a reckoning and an awareness of the way that those uh, factors still are very pervasive and play a role in these health outcomes. And I'll add mass incarceration, right? And that the ma- this huge impact that mass incarceration has had, in particular on our black and brown communities, that we're, you know, our criminal justice system isn't broken. Our criminal justice system, criminal legal system, is working just as it was designed in order to break down these communities. The goal is to right. break down communities. Um, and so as we continue to work to disrupt mass incarceration, uh, and into my mind, um, work towards abolition, then we can continue to break down those structures. We have to also look at prisons. And frankly, pregnant women in prison are not, a, not that small of a, of a population. We have to also consider them. And I also, I, I believe that dads, we talk a lot about the women. Fathers can play a very important role as well in helping these moms be supportive and advocating for their significant other because this is their child that's coming into the world. This is a child that they want to share, hopefully, co-parenting with. Um, so I feel it's, it's very important that we have fathers invested in this um, as much as we possibly can. And I know some people who are working with dads. Um, Doug Edwards comes to mind, uh, who's done a lot of work with fathers. And he happens to be on our Connecticut, um, I'm going to say it wrong, Connecticut Association for Infant Mental Health. I said it right. Um, <laughs> He's doing some incredible work with dads and getting dads to um, getting them educated and getting them to acknowledge that birth and trauma is out here and it is impacting um, women of color. It's impacting families of color. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WN 
HHFM 103.5. Um, Sadie, you beat me to the punch. I was going to ask, you know, where are our men in this conversation? Um, you know, I, the, I, when it comes to organizing, uh, women are often leading. And I'm always just like, where are the brothers? Where, where are we in these conversations? So, you know, what, what, what do men need to be? Where do men need to be in this conversation? And what are the things that they need to hear? Well, I know when, when I was working for the city, we had a male home visitor who was working with dads and he was also going to Whaley Avenue Correctional working with dads. I think he went as far as Cheshire to work with dads to keep them in sync with what development the child was going through, what those stages look like, um, and talking about brain development and things of that nature. And then he would talk to them about what the mom is experiencing because, of course, they're separated because they're in prison. But those were the, the gentlemen that were in prison, the ones that were home and that were around and were doing their part. Um, this male home visitor worked with them somewhat the same he, he did a lot of education on prenatal development he did a lot of education around postpartum depression how she's going to feel mm -hmm. later on how you can help with that um, but also being a partner from day one when you find out you're going to be a father to support her to support each other um, and he did incredible work and we lost that person and the city had functioned without a male home visitor for quite some time and i thought that was a a hard loss for uh, families for the city. I think part of that too, again, going back to gender, right? That that we te we we think of teaching and social work and counseling as women's fields, mm -hmm. and we have incredibly strong women who are doing these amazing things. But if we were, well, frankly, if we were to pay them more, right? Yeah. If we were to increase the salaries so that the people doing this hard work were actually earning a living wage, um, that would help. Um, and and also just teaching our students that social work is something that men can do too that that mm -hmm. that you know you don't there isn't there isn't a gender to these different professions that you can do helping professions i have so many students you know they want to be cops they want to be probation officers they want to be parole officers correctional officers you know part of that reason is because the salaries are really freaking great and the and the retirement is really great where you get great benefits so transfer that over to these helping professions um and 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 also you know again with with southern connecticut right have these schools that are training people to be nurses that are training people to be social workers get some recruitment out there for for men because they really do want to help it's just they the do. traditional traditional pathways to helping quote unquote helping is is punitive is within our criminal legal mm -hmm. system mm. i i just want to echo all of that i think southern has um we have a new state-of-the-art building for the College of Health and Human Services. The most incredible building. If it's you can get amazing. a tour, there's nothing like it on, on this coast, frankly. It is absolutely state-of-the-art. Our, our, our public health program is actually um, one of, if not the oldest, public health program in the state of Connecticut, and it's fully accredited, both mm -hmm. the master's and undergrad program. And um, I think especially during COVID, there was more of a recognition of the role of just how important and vital public health is in our society. And, um, and, so, and then we also have dedicated faculty that are actually um, actively um, doing research on this type of um, these issues, health equity. Uh, Southern is considered a social justice um, institution. And so there are many dedicated faculty that really try to honor that um, with research, with teaching in the curriculum, 
just mm -hmm. a, I'm bringing awareness to these type of issues. No, that that is beautiful. As we uh, come towards the end, um, you know, I, it's not often that I get to ask people, right? I wear multiple headphones, but you know, what are the multiple headphones, multiple hats that y'all wear? That's loaded. <laughs> <laughs> I can start. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm a faculty member. I'm a professor, uh, and I work very, very hard to be ac actively involved in the lives of my students and bringing my students into my research, um, into our spaces, creating a home for our students mm -hmm. in the department. Uh, and in our lovely buildings, uh, I'm also a mom. Uh, my 12-year-old uh, son, uh, Bowie, uh, mm. he's autistic. And bringing disability into the conversation is something that I'm very passionate about. I think especially the intersections of uh, gender, race, and disability. I think we don't pay a lot of attention uh, to our black and brown disabled kids. And then they end up uh, in our prisons and jails and we need to interrupt that and also paying attention to the moms uh, and the families but in particular the moms through um uh, i co-founded the hamden special education pta as you know justin so um getting the getting support for our families who uh, have kids with disabilities is also incredibly important to me hey. so hats <laughs> uh let's <laughs> see i am a mom hey i am an cheerleader i'm an organizer i'm the loudest voice in the room and don't care um because people need that um i'm a mental health provider i am a crisis coordinator um and i'm just every woman i'll put it in shaka's hands <laughs> that, that was well said hard to follow that up but um i echo that i'm a mom uh to five children hey. um um, in addition to even just saying professor, when you're a professor, you're not just teaching, you're doing research, you're serving on a zillion committees, um, also active in the community um, with the um, Hamden Partnership for Young Children as a parent ambassador. Um, I'm a world traveler. I, traveling is actually one of my favorite uh, hobbies. I tell folks that um, I've been to almost 25 countries and... Um, I have a goal to visit as many of the U.S. states as possible, and as of now, I'm kind of um, zoning in on 30 states. Oh. So um, I'm an avid sports fan, so you know I've, I wear many different hats. Um, so those are some of them. But um, I'm, I'm every woman, woman. I definitely agree with that. <laughs> Man, y'all throwing out classics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely day. Yeah. Um, where? Where and how can people connect with you, find you, um, collaborate with you? Well, they can, um, Sadie, they can find me on the Connecticut Breastfeeding Coalition. They can also find me with CT AIM, which is Connecticut Association for Infant Mental Health. Um, and you can also find me the State of Connecticut website, but I'm keeping that one, you know. On the down low. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that hat's in the closet. Yeah. 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 Yes. It has to be today. Yes. Yeah, so for me, um, you can visit the Southern website, uh, Department of Public Health. Um, I am um, one of the list of faculty. First name is um, A-N-U-L-I. Um, and um, you can see my profile. I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, at my Southern website, you can also see the list of papers um, and research that I've done to see my research interests. And I'm always... I'm happy to collaborate. I do a lot of research with students. So mm -hmm. we've um, presented at conferences together. We've published papers together. 
um, as well as with um, other um, faculty, both within and outside of Southern. Um, so that's, that's a great way to um, look me up. Department of Public Health at Southern Connecticut State University. And I'm Venezia Michelson. Everybody calls me Venice. Um, I am in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at Southern Connecticut State University. Pretty easy to find there as well. So. Well, my favorite question that I always get to ask people uh, is, what is a song that we can remember you by, connect with, um, you know, I, I think it's so important in movements to be able to connect words and melodies together. Um, so what's a song that speaks to y'all that, or individual songs that speak to y'all? I wonder if Sadie answered that question <laughs> <laughs> with her song choice of I'm Every Woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's for you too, both of you. <laughs> that really says it. Yeah. yeah. I think for me. I think mm -hmm. it's great. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about a, a totally, completely different song. There's a song called Buildings and Bridges by Ani DeFranco. And she says, buildings and bridges were made to bend in the wind, to withstand the world. That's what it takes. And I think that black and brown moms in particular have to do so much bending. And we need to do a better job of, of securing those foundations so they don't break. Yeah. Mm. And Justin, for the moms out there, I'm going to give it to Aretha. On top of my I'm Every Woman, I have to give it to her for respect. Okay. Okay. Thanks. All right. Got me smelling I'm gonna over second here. That one. <laughs> I'm going to second that one. <laughs> well, I, I thank y'all for the time, the gifts, the talents, the respect uh, that y'all are giving to, to the community and to highlight uh, the issues around uh, uh, the mortality rate and black and brown uh, communities uh, thank y'all so much for joining into being in community um, until next time let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together thank you for having thank me. you for having me yeah so y'all we're trying to play leaving all right see you at the airport Traveling man, moving through places, space and time, got a lot.